Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. I don't usually preach from up here. But the way that this is constructed is a reminder of what generations in the past believed about the word of God. That it was, it was it, we could look up to it. Uh, this isn't about a person, this is about the, the message of the gospel and the message of scripture. Lord, I ask your blessing now as we look into your word, as we uh, think together, as we hear from you, speak to us. Uh, let the tears flow, Lord. Uh, let, the, let the questions come. They come to our heart all the time anyway. Let them come now. And we, we place ourselves in your hands. And we, we give our ears to, to hear you. And we know it's through imperfect means you've chosen that. And yet your word is what we seek. Your Holy Spirit now is the ministry we need. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So C.S. Lewis, uh, mourning the loss of his wife, Joy David, to cancer uh, in his book on grief. It's, it's his shortest book. A little plug there. It's called The Grief Observed. He wrote, don't talk to me about the consolation of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. And the first sentence in his book after the introduction is this, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. And he continues, I'll read a little bit of it. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid the same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty if only they would talk to one another and not to me. There are moments, most unexpectedly, when something inside me tries to assure me that I don't really mind so much. Not so very much after all. Love is not the whole of a man's life. I was happy before I met his wife. I have plenty of what are called resources. People get over things. Come, I shan't do so badly. One is ashamed to listen to this voice, but it seems for a little to be making out a good case. Then comes the sudden jab of red-hot memory and all this common sense vanishes like an ant in the mouth of a furnace. And later on he says about going to God, but I go to him when I'm desperate, when all other help is in vain, 
And what do I find? And continuing now in what he says, a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent, a help in time of trouble? So there's no answer for this question in the Bible. Instead, there is medicine from God's hand in Scripture for the wounds of grief, the wounds that lead to such questions. I'm going to look at Psalm 23 and then Job 1 and 2. And I've done this uh, about every other one of these services, especially Job. So, so many funerals, every funeral I've ever done or been to, there it is, right? Psalm 23. That's always in the old school King James Version, which a lot of people seem to know by heart or at least they, they fake it, right? It's got the landscape of the sheep and the shepherd, right? Nice. And at the end, you got the table. The God's goodness and mercy, that's nicer, you know? But in the middle of it, in the middle of Psalm 23, there's this picture that rivals any horror movie, any Stephen King novel or campfire ghost story. It might even be the darkest, one of the darkest places in the Bible. Forget the fluffy sheep. Forget the homeless dude who made good and got a stable job as a shepherd who God likes to represent himself as. It's wild. Forget the flowers, the trees, the butterflies, the green pastures. Forget the table at the end with all the food. You know, help yourself, serving spoons on the side, get a plate. Forget all that. Forget all that when you're in the valley, the valley of shadows. And the psalm, it takes you there and then it pulls you out before it's too late. Just listen to it. Psalm 23 in the old school version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. That's the whole psalm. And every time I read it or hear it read, we get to the shadow of death, and then you feel like the rest of the psalm is trying to make up for that. And then it occurs to me sometimes when I'm reading about the enemies that that's the enemy, the valley, the fear, death, the shadow. And that's just what death is like. It's like a shadow. And maybe you're here because you're mourning that or something like it. Either way, Christmas is difficult. And like I said before, you're in the right place. In Psalm 23, it's like the power goes out when you get to that verse. It's a power outage, a lot like we experience sometimes in our homes, a cessation of, of sound, you know, the sound that sound going away makes, you know, when everything goes down, and, and the little, the buzz, 
of your home protecting you and being lit up for you and being warm for you, the whole thing shuts down. And you can hear that sound, especially at night, because then it's accompanied by darkness. And death and loss, they do this to our lives. They, they pull the plug and we struggle to light a candle, to find a flashlight. You know, uh, in some cases we tell ourselves, you know, it's gonna be all right, you know. Um, we're not sure, maybe we have a generator, we turn that thing on. Oh, now here comes some power, but we hear the, 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 the generator, you know, the, the sound of it, the rumbling of it. It's a reminder to us that the power is out. And when the power goes out in our home, it doesn't just go out in one room. It's the whole house that goes dark, and that's what grief does to some of us, and we're surprised by it. It's not just the loss of the person. This loss affects everything, every conversation you have, every moment of the day. You're going to work. You think it's just work? No, the shadow's going with you to work. And there you are, and some random conversation will will bring that jab that C.S. Lewis talks about. There you'll feel it or some photograph, not even of anyone you know, but you'll see in that photograph an emotion and that will bring it back to you and remind you of the presence of the shadow and where you are in your life and what you're going through and just what you lost. And it can be overwhelming. And that's expressed here. That's the picture, the valley of the shadow of death. And the only comfort given here is that you're not alone and you won't stay there. You don't live there. It doesn't last forever. That's the promise. And it's nice to know that God knows we're afraid. He knows that we feel like we're alone. He knows that it hurts, and he's with us in our fear. He's with us in our pain. He leads us through it. Now, knowing this and reminding ourselves of this around Christmas time is what the Blue Christmas Service is all about. I've always had a little issue with the title because it comes from that Elvis song. It's not my favorite Christmas song. I mean, here's, here's the lyrics. I know you, you were hoping to hear them. Well, good, here, here you go. I'll have a blue Christmas without you. I'll be so blue just thinking about you. Decorations of red on a green Christmas tree won't be the same, dear, if you're not here with me. And when those blue snowflakes start falling, that's when those blue memories start calling. You'll be doing all right with your, your Christmas of white, but I'll have a blue, 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 blue Christmas. So to use my own life as an example, I, saying I was blue, you know, and still am blue because my dad, who died in 2018, isn't around to make Christmas real for me. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't feel very complete. It leaves out the harder emotions. I'm not just blue. You're not just blue. You're in pain. It just hurts. It shouldn't be. You didn't want this. And Christmas especially, it brings it around for me. My father had this big reel-to-reel player. And you remember those? And he had the, the quadraphonic stereo. Well, I guess it's more than stereo. He had the, these big speakers with marble tops in each corner of the of the living room, and he'd play that reel-to-reel of his Christmas favorites, always beginning with Merikariki Maka is the thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day. So it's a strange memory that's in my head, but there it is, you know, and he would play that thing 
you know, that's how we would wake up, you know, and he believed in only shopping on Christmas Eve day. So no shopping until that day. He'd get up, shave, take a shower, and head out and hit the malls and get our gifts. And we got some of the strangest gifts because there's just nothing left. And we, and we would have to say, oh, it's just what I wanted. You know, and well, where'd you get this? You know, uh, he found it. And sometimes he, he, he would go nuts. He just loved it. And, you know, I lost that when I lost him. And that's what loss does. You, you lose the person and you lose all the parts of your life connected to the person and then you have the memories. And it can be difficult to navigate those memories because sometimes the memories are sweet but sometimes they're bittersweet. And sometimes they're too much to take. And death becomes, uh, you know, when you lose somebody, you realize it's not just even, even the good parts of the person. You, you, you miss the bad parts, too. That's the strangest thing. Like, the, 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 the person you lost, the situation that you're experiencing that's like that loss, it had its problems, and you want those problems back sometimes. Yeah. Loss, it's so unnatural. It's a, I feel like it's a cruel lunacy to go around saying how death is a natural part of life. You know, that's just wrong and it's bad theology. And what if it was not wrong? What if that was correct? What if death was natural? How would that help? You know, the circle of life, I, it's not doing anything for me. It doesn't feel natural. You know, there's zero comfort there. It's weak tea. So we, ha- we have our Bibles, and they offer us an insanity-free option of seeing death as it is, a cursed consequence of sin, you know. But this is where it gets harder for those of us with faith because we believe in a God who is in control, and we know he, the one we pray to and worship, he, he, the one we have faith in, he has control, and you know, he could have done something. The outcome could have been different. Of course, it could have been different. He could have made it so, but he didn't. And that thing, it sits in our soul as we feel these feelings of loss and try not to feel them. And God knows this. And it's not just a a verse in a psalm about the valley of the shadow of death, as powerful as that is. There's a whole book that shows us that God knows that this is how we feel the book of Job, and it's one of the oldest books in the Bible, if not the oldest in the actual date of its writing. And if you read the Bible chronologically, maybe you're going to do that next year, you know, read through the Bible chronologically. Well, Job will come earlier than you think. Some of those chronological Bibles place it right after Genesis chapter 11. Now, early on, God knew right away, this is going to be a problem for people. Loss and death. When they, when they believe in me, it's going to be a problem. And let me, let me create this book. Let me create this story that addresses the problem. Again, it's not a book of answers. It's a book of ministry. And the ministry in the book ends up being God himself, his presence at the end. So this, this book, it starts with this strange scene in heaven, you know, involving God and Satan. And... There's this righteous man, Job. He experiences all this loss and all this pain. And this happens to him 
because God considers him righteous. So that throws away all our karma and karmic thinking. What goes around comes around nonsense. This is not applicable to Job ever. Your good outweighs your bad, garbage. You know, he was good all the way, so that doesn't work. And the, the whole idea that that's how things work, that plagued the minds of Job's three friends. And we go chapter by chapter by chapter listening to them try to teach Job about this, and they end up being wrong, dead wrong. That's one of the biggest points made in Job is that we all go through this, good, bad, ugly, righteous, unrighteous. We suffer. We suffer loss ever since Genesis chapter 3, ever since the world was like the world is. We suffer, and God knows that, and our proverbial wisdom, that's what karmic thinking is in Bible terms, you know, as you sow, so shall you reap. Sometimes you reap differently than you sow. And you just can't explain it. And that hurts so much. And especially when you believe in God who taught you that as you sow, so shall you reap. And Job acknowledges all this. And one of the things that I like best about Job is this one verse in Job. It's, it's like Psalm 24 verse 7 talking about the valley of the shadow of death, like he acknowledges the fear and the pain and the darkness, but it does something more. And this, this verse is Job 1.22, and I want to read the verses leading up to this, and it tells the terrible story of how Job's problems began. It's verses 13 through 22. Now, there was a day... When his sons and daughters, Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And it's that word or that offers some ministry to us. The Hebrew reads a little different. Maybe you're looking at it now. You don't have to. But the Hebrew reads a little different for verse 22. It reads that Job did not accuse God of tastelessness or offensiveness or unseemliness. A different English 
Bible versions do different things with this first. The NIV, like the New Living Translation, the New International Version, eliminates the or. And it reads that Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But that's not a good translation. That's not a good translation. There are many problems with that translation choice. So is, is God, is charging God with wrongdoing a sin? Yes, it is. If you are charging God with sin, then that is a sin. But if you are arguing with God about something that he wants, something that you think is wrong, well, that cannot be a sin because everyone from Jesus on down in the Bible does this. And keep in mind that this is the word of God preserved by God for all eternity. God preserves the record of his son asking for his assigned cup to pass in Mark 14.36 and Luke 22.42. God preserves the Psalms like Psalm 77 that ask him directly if he has forgotten that he is good. Let me just read some of those verses to you. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 36. Luke twenty two forty two. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will. That means I don't want this. That's what that means. Jesus said that to the Father. Maybe you've been saying that. Maybe that's the, the thing that brought you here. That's the first thing you said about it. When you learn the terrible news, I don't, I don't want this. I don't want it. No. Jesus said the same thing. That's not a sin. Listen to Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? And are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Those questions are printed in your Bible. In the complete Jewish Bible uh, by David H. Stern, it reads, Job 122 reads, in all this, Job neither committed a sin, nor put the blame on God. So instead of or, the word nor is there. Another Jewish version of the scriptures say this. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he cast reproach on God. The amplified version of the Holy Bible reads, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Two different things. Now, Job doesn't stay on this track. He complains. He blames God for everything in the chapters to come. And it turns out he does not sin in doing so. And keep in mind that he was a sinner like the rest of us, but it says he did not sin in how he accepted or attempted to accept his losses. It does not say he never sinned. And the very fact that his righteousness was evidenced by sacrifices means that he knows that he knew he showed that he knew he had to make sacrifices. He knew there was sin. And sin is only paid for by, by death. And, and now, you know, we, we realize that as Christians, God, he, he gave his only son 
You know, that's the sacrifice that he gave to pay for our sins. And that's the birth of that is what Christmas is all about, what Advent is all about. It's, it's strange, isn't it? Someone whose birth and whose being born to die, we, we, we celebrate this time of the year. And so this, this or, it leads us to Job chapter two where now Satan attacks Job's health and then you see the three friends come in. Just a beautiful passage. I just want to read that part about the, the three friends. But before that, bring in his wife as well because we need to hear from her too. So it's Job chapter two, verses nine through verse 12. Then his wife said to him, this is after Satan has attacked him again, physically his body. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So some people are hard on his, on his wife. And yet, he's not. She's doing that. She's complaining. But we don't hear that she was anything but foolish. There's a foolishness to our complaints. But it's a foolishness that God has patience with and Job, as a husband, did as well here, as, a, as one suffering. And then the three friends come in in verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. You ever hear the joke about Bildad the Shuhite, that he was short because he was only as high as a shoe? No, that's terrible, I know. <laughs> but these guys are, there's a humor to them when it's, when it's all said and done and they stay as friends. But look at this, the, the second half of 11 and 12. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And verse 13, and when they sat with them on the ground seven days, and they sat with them on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. That's, that's one of the most beautiful scenes in scripture. And these guys, uh, they, they, hadn't, uh, they hadn't committed anything foolish yet. They hadn't opened their mouths. Uh, they hadn't, you know, they hadn't brought out all the religious words. Uh, those religious words that C.S. Lewis, you know, at the, at the beginning when I said, don't talk to me about the consolation of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Well, they were trying to console him with religion and it didn't work. But that consolation of just silence and weeping together. And that's, if we do nothing else tonight, that's what we do. We weep together with his word, with our songs, with communion and candlelight in a moment. We're not gonna be hard on Job's wife. We're not gonna be hard on the friends. We see that Job was seen by God in his suffering. We can know that about ourselves too. 
God sees you. He sees what you're going through. Satan plays a limited role, and for all his evil, he ends up serving the Lord's purposes, you know? His failure is the subtext of the story, the failure of evil. The Christmas message is not about a manger in the end, but a Passover and what that Passover meal means. You know, a lamb without defect had to die, and the blood of this dead thing protected those whose door frames were painted by it. Painted. Your door frame was painted by loss and suffering and death, and that is how the angel of death passed over your house. And so all that symbolism is built into communion, is built into uh, Jesus and his birth, the birth of his ministry to us in eternity. And it's part of what we're gonna celebrate tonight. And, and just look at that or in Job 1.22. It's comfort for us who mourn. You know, because we know that, that God, he saves us from our sins and he hears us and holds us close when we blame him for our losses. In reality, we don't sin or blame. We, we, we sin and blame, you know, and God knows. He sent Jesus to pay for our sins and to set us free from them and to let us know that he's with us, that he feels with us when we blame him for seeming to take back what he gives us. In the light of this, listen to the words of Martha. Let these words prepare us for the table. Martha in John 11. Words of great faith and great blame. Let them reassure you tonight. As my friend Bob Tilly says, you know, in Christ God saves, he saves you, and he camps out with you under your pain. John 11, 20 through 27. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God was coming into the world. And I find it hard to believe that she could have said those words through dry eyes. That brings us to the table. So the elements will be passed out and there are two cups. So this the cup with the grape juice, this is not, these are not the uh, COVID-style lunchable communion uh, things. 
Those are getting a little dated, so this is fresh, actual grape juice, recently bought in a store, and that's on top, and then you have the bread underneath. A sacred time for us. So I'm going to pray, and as I pray, the men will, will pass out the elements of communion. This is for all who believe, all who trust Christ for salvation. Lord, thank you. Thank you for salvation. And thank you for all that accompanies salvation. You accompany salvation. You are with us. You are our counselor. You speak to our hearts. You hear our complaints. And they, and they far from chasing you away, they, they draw you closer. That's how good you are. Thank you for this. Help us to, to know you. Help us to see this. Help us to, to know for sure tonight that you are no stranger to our pain. And that you have faced what we faced and you've given us what we need to get through it. And you've given us no less than yourself. Set apart these elements, Lord, this bread and this cup for holy purpose on this evening. Let them be to our faith, your body broken, your blood shed, to pay the full price for our sins, to set us free from sin and death and hell, and to assure us that we are never alone, even in those times when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even in those times when we don't know what you're doing and we don't like it and we don't want it, still you are with us and you assure us of that and you offer us this sacrament as assurance. And so we do this, Lord. This night we do this in remembrance of you. In your name, Jesus, we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.